Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me pray for us before we uh, read the sermon text. Father, what we ask now is the same thing that we always ask at this time, and that is that you would use this word that we're going to read together and hear together and think about together to show us uh, the grace that you have given us in Jesus again. Show us the Jesus that is at the heart of this story that we're going to read. Meet those of us here this morning who feel uh, really close to you and who are ready to hear. Meet those of us here this morning who feel far from you because you seem distant to us or we've been running from you. Meet those of us who have faith, those of us who do not have faith. Father, show us the beauty and grace of Jesus, and we pray it in his name. Amen. So we're going to start a uh, new series of sermons this morning that's going to take us all the way through Easter. Um, the, The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us the basic outline of Jesus' life. Um, After his birth and childhood, they tell us first about his teaching and ministry and life around his home in Galilee. And as Jesus teaches and does miracles during that stretch, really great crowds, huge crowds start gathering around him. And then at perhaps what is the height of his popularity, he takes the 12 disciples aside and he asks them who they think he really is. And so Peter answers for all of them, and he's right, um, but they don't really know exactly what that answer means. And from that point on, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that things began to change. Things start to change really drastically. Jesus, from that point on, begins to say that he is heading towards Jerusalem and saying that he is headed there to suffer and eventually to be killed. And while this journey to Jerusalem is happening, the opposition against Jesus increases, and those crowds that had been all around Jesus begin to thin out considerably. And if you know the story, you know that at the very end, it is just Jesus alone. Everyone leaves him, including the twelve. And so Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is hard, and it is beautiful all at once. It leads to Jesus' death but it is also the road that leads to life for you and for me and for the world. So we're going to look over the next few weeks at Matthew's story of that journey to Jerusalem. And this morning, we're going to look at a prelude to that journey. It's the last thing that Matthew tells us happened as Jesus was leaving Galilee. So I'm going to read from Matthew 16 for us, verses 1 through 12. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from Matthew 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. 
Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So the other day, uh, I was given a couple of the Adamson kids a ride home, Pastor Dan's kids, two of them, uh, Joey and Lucy. And we were on North Avenue headed west. Um, <clears throat> I knew that they lived south of North Avenue, but I wasn't exactly sure because I'd never come that way before. wasn't exactly sure the right place to turn to be nearest to their house. So I asked Joey where I should turn, and he said, turn right at Cermak. Now this, uh, this threw me off all kinds of ways for a couple reasons. First of all, because I was about 99.9% sure that they lived south of North Avenue, and that I was going to have to turn left to get to their house, not right. And of course, if you know the city, you know the second reason it threw me off, and that's because Cermak Avenue is at 2000 South. It's nowhere near North Avenue. It runs parallel to it on the south side of the city. So I heard that, and I was thrown off, and I just said to Joey, what? And he said back confidently, turn right at Cermak. <laughs> and so what followed after that was about a minute of us just saying the same thing to each other over and over again. Me saying, what? And him saying, turn right at Cermak, and louder and louder with more and more laughter. And then, uh, you know, finally, we were all kind of in chaos in the car. And just when I thought I was going to have to pull my phone out to figure out how to get there, there it was. I saw it. Cermak Produce, 2701 West North Avenue. <laughs> and then it fell into place. I could finally read the signs. Turn right at Cermak meant turn on the street closest to Cermak Produce. You know, right at Cermak Produce. That's where you turn. You know, duh. We were looking at the same thing, but seeing very differently. And that is, of course, precisely what's happening in the story that we just read together. First, between Jesus and the religious establishment, and then between Jesus and his friends. He'd like both of those groups not just to look, but to see who he really is. And that invitation is for people like you and me too, because seeing Jesus for who he really is leads us to life. So Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus to test him. This is remarkable for all kinds of reasons. The Pharisees show up in the Gospels a lot. They were an extremely influential, very respected, lay, nationalist pressure group. The Pharisees believed, among other things, that on the whole, God's people weren't holy enough. They believed that if God's people 
paid more attention to keeping the law, and in particular, the laws that separated them from other people, then maybe God would take notice on them and restore their fortunes and deliver them from their enemies. So by this point in Jesus' life, we know that the Pharisees really, really don't like Jesus at all because he doesn't share their scrupulosity about elaborate, convoluted law-making and law-keeping, and perhaps just as horrifically to them, maybe, maybe even more horrifically to them, Jesus doesn't share their nationalism. He's happy to sit down at a table with someone who isn't an Israelite. In fact, sometimes he goes out of his way to do it. They can't stand it. Sadducees are a different story altogether. They weren't a lay group like the Pharisees. They were actually part of the ruling class of Israel, part of the aristocracy. Chief priests were sometimes Sadducees, and so were many of the wealthy in Jerusalem. And Jesus threatens them, at the very least, because if the people gathered around Jesus and start any kind of revolt, they will not be able to hold on to their power any longer. Another interesting thing, of course, about the Sadducees is that in order to maintain and cultivate the influence and the power that they had in Jerusalem in the first century, they had to collude with the Roman occupiers, and they did, all of the time. And this put them at vicious odds with the Pharisees, who hated that they did that. But here they are together together. In fact, this is the only time we see these two groups working together in all of the Gospels, because both of these groups look at Jesus as a great threat. Great enough for them to put aside their dislike of each other and confront him together. This was always true of Jesus in the Gospels, and I think it's worth saying that nothing much has changed. Jesus is a threat, and there's no way to get around that. He is a threat not only to corrupted leadership. He's a threat not only to misguided and controlling religiosity. I mean, he's definitely a threat to those things, but he is a threat to a lot of other things, too. He's a threat to the desire to treat sojourners and refugees as enemies. He's a threat to any desire we might have to approach our actual enemies in ways that do not begin first with love. He is a threat to our desire, your desire and practice, and my desire and practice to find ultimate satisfaction and, and life in the acquisition of things. He is a threat to me walling off parts of my life and fostering the fantasy that those parts of my life he doesn't care about, he doesn't have anything to say about. What I'm saying is if we have never looked at Jesus and seen him as a threat, I am not sure that we have really seen him at all. If we've never seen Jesus as a threat to our own little clown kingdoms and our grasps for power, we haven't seen him yet. And that goes for every one of us here this morning. Those of us here who have followed Jesus for a really long time, and those of us who have not yet decided to follow Jesus 
And the question for all of us, the critical question for every one of us is, how does that threat get resolved? Because Jesus is like no threat we have ever seen before. He doesn't do battle with us. He does battle for us. He resolves us for our good, for our flourishing forever. We'll come back to that. So what these groups do is they come to Jesus and they ask Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. What they want is for Jesus to do something or to call some amazing thing down that will show that God has unequivocally endorsed him for the life that he's leading, for the things that he is saying. It's a classic bind. If he, if he can't do something, if he can't, you know, show them a sign on the spot, then he gets exposed as a fraud. Uh, if he refuses to do something, then there's a chance that he'll lose popular support among the people. If he does something, then he looks like he answers to them. <laughs> so, of course, Jesus chooses a fourth option. Jesus starts talking about the weather. <laughs> it is so wily and beautiful and perfect. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, look, when it's evening, you say it's going to be fair weather because the sky is red. And then when the sky looks threatening, you say it's going to be stormy today. <laughs> you, you guys, Jesus says, you guys are killer at figuring out the weather. Nice job. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. But Jesus says, <laughs> you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And with this, he introduces the great irony of their request, and that is that they are up to their necks in signs. There are signs all around them, and they're not seeing anything at all. Just before this in Matthew's Gospel, um, Jesus has healed a Canaanite woman's son, uh, daughter. This is the kind of thing uh, that would have driven the Pharisees up a wall. Here is Jesus again, hanging out with non-Israelites and healing them. But their blindness to it doesn't make it any less of a sign. Then after that, Matthew tells us that Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and, and great crowds come to him and he heals blind folks and the mute and those who had been lame from birth. You know, lips were loosed to sing for the first time, and eyes finally saw the sun, and arms and legs worked again, and people ran and jumped for joy. That's the kind of resurrection-anticipating power that the Sadducees would have rather preferred to pretend did not exist in our world. But their inability to see it doesn't mean it wasn't a sign. After that, Matthew tells us that Jesus uh, feeds this huge crowd with just a few loaves of bread and some small fish. The, these are the signs of the times that Jesus is talking about. All of these things are pointers to him. They're all pointers to his identity. They are, in fact, the unequivocal endorsement of the Father that these groups were faking like they wanted to see. Of course they saw those things or heard about them from people who did. 
but they did not confirm their preferred view of the world. They did not confirm their preferred view of Jesus, and so they come to him cynical or malicious or both. And so he pegs them as part of an evil and adulterous generation. Jesus is saying, you guys are the kind of guys who say that you'll be faithful till you're blue in the face, and then you cheat on your spouses behind their backs. You are deceitful. You are unfaithful. And those are hard words from Jesus, absolutely, but we have to remember that hard words like this from Jesus are always invitations to turn around. Church, we can never forget, we can never forget that it was a member of the aristocracy, Joseph of Arimathea, who begged Jesus' body from Pilate after he died, and he did it because he believed. There is always, always hope. So this is the only place where Jesus uses that phrase, the signs of the times. And, you know, like a lot of Jesus' teaching, it has passed on into popular culture. Harry Styles recently recorded a song called Sign of the Times. Prince had a double album in the 80s called Sign of the Times. And for some reason, when Christians use this word or talk about it or write about it, it sounds most of the time like they're talking about Jesus was saying that we should be able to read about the end of time. But that is not at all what Jesus is saying here. He is talking about being able to see him and his kingdom in the present right here, right now. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas taught theology and ethics at Duke for many, many years, and he's written something about this phrase, and since I, since I read it, I can't stop thinking about it. He wrote, Rightly reading the signs of the times requires a church capable of standing against the legitimizing stories of the day. Reading the signs of the times requires a church capable of standing against the legitimizing stories of the day. And he goes on to talk about how we often think that we know how to read the signs of the times because we can read the news or we can watch it or whatever. And all of our sources, left, right, center, they always give us a particular reading of the world. And sometimes we end up thinking, well, that's the way things are. That's the way things will always be. But Jesus, Hauerwas writes, Jesus offers an alternate reading of the times. And church, I think part of us growing up as Christian people is to be constantly aware that Jesus gives us an alternate reading of the times and to be constantly asking in conversation with with, with Scripture and in prayer what that alternate reading is. For you and for me, for us to grow up in our faith is to be aware that Jesus gives us another way of reading the world and we have to be asking him always in Scripture and in prayer, what is that reading? I mean, if we did that, that's the end of the kind of wisdom we heard about in the Old Testament lesson, a tree of life for those who grab hold of her. 
We might be lulled into thinking there's not much that we or the church can do or say in this world that will affect change. We might be lulled into thinking that there's not much that God will do or could do in this world to change things. But church, that is simply not true. To use Howard Wass's own phrase, I think there is one legitimizing story. There is one legitimizing story that puts light on every other story, that challenges every other story, that renews every other story, or embraces or rejects every other story. And I think that that's true because I think that's what Jesus says in the end of verse 4. No sign is going to be given to this generation but the sign of Jonah. Jesus earlier in Matthew's gospel had talked about the sign of Jonah, that recalcitrant prophet who had spent three nights and three days in the belly of a fish. It was back in Matthew 12, and this is what Jesus said after you mentioned the sign of Jonah then. He said, the son of man will be three nights in the belly of the earth. I don't think anyone really understood what Jesus was saying when he said it. But all of us in here, with the benefit of knowing the whole story, we certainly do. Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection. And church, that is the sign. That is the sign that contains the meaning of the world. That is the sign that contains the meaning of your life and mine. In uh, Colossians 1, Paul tells his friends in that little church that everything holds together in Jesus. He tells that little church that everything in the, all things, everything has been reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus. Everything. I know that's a huge claim, but to be a follower of Jesus is to believe that that's absolutely true and then to order our lives around that truth. That's why Paul, in that New Testament lesson we heard, said that when he went to Corinth, he didn't want to know anything among his friends except for Christ and him crucified. Not because that's all Paul knew, but because that's what he thought the prime thing should be, the most needful thing for a human being to know. Because all of our other knowing, church, all of our other knowing flows from the great and mysterious love that is at the heart of the true story of the world, the death and resurrection of Jesus. His death and resurrection is the alternate reading. It is the lens through which we interpret all other stories including our own. Because of the sign of Jonah, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the entire created order is caught up in a drama that is headed to new creation. And that's how Jesus resolves the threat. This is how Jesus resolves people like you and me. Not by doing battle against us for all of the ways that we want to run our own lives, however we want to run them. But by doing battle for us against our own sin and rebellion and all the stuff we do to build our own little kingdoms and wall us off from God and our neighbors. 
See, these groups had come to Jesus that day to, to cut him down, to destroy him, to tear at him. But what they don't know, what they don't know is that very shortly he is headed to Jerusalem to be torn down for them, to be cut off for them, to be destroyed for them, his life for theirs, his life for ours, so that we can be forgiven and changed and made new. The sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, a prelude to our new creation. Do you see it? So Jesus left them and he departed. They get into a boat together and they sail north as it turns out across the Sea of Galilee. Matthew makes sure that we know that the disciples didn't bring any bread. <laughs> it's such a weird detail to include. Um, but then Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then things start to fall into place. What Jesus means is that he wants his disciples to not just look at the signs that are piling up all around them, that they're up to their necks in. Not, don't just look at them, Jesus is saying. See them. He doesn't want them to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wants them to see who he really is. He wants them to maybe even begin to work out the puzzle of the sign of Jonah. But if you've read the Gospels, you know that the disciples are not always really quick to pick those things up when Jesus lays them down. <laughs> and so instead, for some reason, they, they think he's talking about the fact that they didn't bring bread. And so they start quietly murmuring among themselves about this oversight. It is an exercise in missing the point, or maybe more to the point, it is an exercise in not seeing I think we're supposed to hear the story and smile. Not, not the least of which the reasons are because we see ourselves in them. So Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about not having bread? And then he reminds them about feeding those big crowds and all they had left over. I mean, the last thing that they should ever worry about anymore is having enough bread. And Jesus says as much. He says, how are you missing this? <laughs> that I'm not talking about bread. And then they get it. He's talking about not being like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's talking about being able to see him for who he really is. And church, I love that this epilogue is here on this story. Because it is a great reminder to people like us that it's not just the opponents of Jesus, it's not just the bad guys in the story that fail to see him. Sometimes his friends fail to see him. The little faith ones. And I don't know about you, but I confess that that is often me. One of the little faith ones. Overwhelmed by the legitimizing stories of the day, head down, looking only at the stuff that I can see right in front of me, forgetting about the true story of the world, forgetting about this 
beautiful sign of Jonah that pulses at the heart of it all. Looking but not seeing. And so it's good to be reminded that little faith is still faith. And it's enough. You, you can follow Jesus with little faith. I mean, these guys are. But it's also good to be reminded by Jesus himself that he is calling people like us every day into something more than little faith. Do we hear that invitation? Do we not just look? Do we see? Let me pray for us. Father, we hear this story and, of course, we are taken uh, by the dullness of the disciples again. But even more so, Father, we are taken by the kindness and patience of Jesus with them. And so what we ask now is that we, we here right now would experience your kindness and your patience as you help us to see the story that gives meaning to all other stories, including our own. Father, we ask that you would do this for our good and for the good of this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.